It's Wednesday, July 12, 2023 from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Eaton has a new headmaster. Well, Simon Henderson has been in place for eight years, but when we're talking about an institution that was founded in 1440 and they count time in epics, I guess that Simon Henderson is relatively new. He's changing some things or embracing some new ways. This was all written up in the New York Times today. It says that Henderson has promoted discussions about masculinity, sexism, and gender identity and celebrated Black and LGBTQ plus history months. You know, just kind of dragging it into the 21st century. Now, some people do not like this. Some people have given Simon Henderson a nickname. Hendy, as he's called, is sometimes derided as Trendy Hendy. I wonder if this is a good nickname. Hendy for Henderson, that's not a good nickname. And I'm suspecting that the British tabloids foisted the Hendy upon him just to tag him with the Trendy Hendy nickname for use in headlines. Nicknames are falling by the wayside. We need better nicknames. And this was brought to mind as I was watching the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. And baseball used to be a source of great, great nicknames, or at least real try-hard nicknames. Cap Anson, the Marshalltown Infant. Luke Appling, Old Aches and Pains. There were, in the early part of the last century, not one, but two gentlemen, Jack Chapman and Bob Ferguson, whose nicknames were each death to flying things. They tried to foist that one on a later player, Franklin Gutierrez. It did not stick. When you look down the nickname list of the batters in the Major League Baseball All-Star Game lineup, you'll see some purported nicknames. They had this promotion where players got to pick the names on the back of their jerseys, and they went with things like, ready for this burst of creativity? Corey Seager went with Seags, Major League Seags. That would be okay. Sabanero Soy is said to be the nickname of Rolando Acuna. But it's not really. It's just what he put on the back of his jersey. It means, I am Sabanero. I am from the town that he is from in Venezuela. Sabanero soy. I have never heard Acuna coming up to bat and the crowd bursting into chants of Sabanero. And this is why I think we have so few nicknames. Nicknames used to be thrust upon people. They had no say. Sports writers bored over nine inning games and 154 then game seasons would just say, you know what? You're going to be death to flying things. You're going to be high pockets, Kelly, and there's nothing you could do about it. No one would ever even try. There was no social media. There was barely any media. Now that we get to choose our own nicknames, we choose lame things like Seags. I guess Trendy Hendy is somewhere in the middle. Although, if you are one of the Eaton traditionalists, someone to the far, far left. On the show today, it'll take more than Slugworth to stop Willy Wonka. The Hollywood Dream Factory is basically out of ideas. And they're searching the gaps in their teeth for any taste of a gobstopper type flavor that might still be lingering there from the 70s. But first, John McWhorter is a professor of linguistics at Columbia. He's back for another iteration of McWhorter's Quarters, wherein we speak about language, we speak about society, we speak about the interconnections and intersections thereof. Lexicon Valley host, New York Times columnist, and McWhorter's Quarter's namesake, John McWhorter, is up next. 
So true or false or folk etymology, slave comes from Slavic. That yeah. is true. Yes. Related. Those are related, related and, roots. And, but yeah. this argument does nothing when we talk about the master bedroom or the uh, slave and master relationship in computers. It doesn't matter linguistically where it comes from. I mean, frankly, what those things come down to is, do the etymologies in question live in modern thought such that they could be considered to cause offense? And in some cases of master, maybe they could. If in electronics, there's a master board and a slave board, it's a little tacky. Yeah, tacky. I am quite sure that nobody... Yeah, but with a master bedroom, no one ever thought about it. And that means that we have to accept that words can often have many meanings. And so I wouldn't want to call something a master board and a slave board. I, with my unwoke self, would have said, do we need to maintain that? But that doesn't mean that every use of the word master has to be pretended to refer to a plantation. It doesn't mean that social workers shouldn't talk about being in the field because it might make you think about a plantation. Because the thing is, it won't. Right, <laughs> that's, right. That's the issue. Or being a slave to fashion. Should it invoke or evoke, oh, so I'm living in uh, Eastern Europe in the 18th century. <laughs> Should it evoke <laughs> none of that? <laughs> no. Or even, you know, a slave in North Carolina in the 19th century. Yes, words have many meanings, and sometimes they evolve from words that were rather repulsive at the time. But, for example, grandfather clause. I have learned lately that that comes from something having to do with how you classified who was a slave and who wasn't. You could be grandfathered in or grandfathered out. That's how it started. But you didn't know that. I didn't know that. No one's thinking it. There are people today who are saying we need to stop using, you know, grandfathered in because it arose that way. But if no one knows, then it qualifies as obscure etymology, not as a civil tort. These are people looking for something to be offended about. Yeah, so the basic rules are, if even if the etymology is not what it invokes to the listener, be sensitive to that. But if the etymology is actually problematic, but it does not e- invoke any sort of or evoke any sort of discomfort, then it should be fine, unless someone's going uh, roundabout to try to make trouble. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I think that we can be frankly, as sensible about it as we were until about 10 minutes ago. That's yeah. the thing. A lot of this is very <laughs> post-2020. We need to go back to the past in some ways. Just some, but this is one of them. So I don't know exactly if we will use all of that, but even if we do, I will start this interview by saying John McWhorter joins me once again. We've uh, branded this segment, which is now in its second iteration since just season two began as McWhorter's Quarters. John, as you know, is the <laughs> author of Nine Nasty Words and Woke Racism. He is uh, an associate professor of linguistics at Columbia. So many podcasts. I like Lexicon Valley from Booksmart. He's on The Glenn Show. And we were just talking before I gave him this proper intro about why he's in the department of Slavic languages. And then we got into slaves and Slavic and master bedrooms. And this is what happens when I talk to John. Welcome back to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. I want to start off, let's just hit the ground. Let's ease into it. And I want to start off with white supremacy. So here's my question that I've been thinking about a lot. White supremacy in academia is a description of a condition, which is that whiteness, which is also something that people debate about, whiteness is the default condition in America. And I suppose among academics, they would use the phrase white supremacy and have back and forth for many years, and it meant something. At the same time, in popular imagination or the rest of America, a white supremacist was a Klansman. So uh, as I imagine, and maybe you know how this uh, actually happened, there was the 
academics talking about it in one way and the rest of America using it as a shorthand for literally a member of the Ku Klux Klan or the like organization. Then the academic word comes into the mainstream and I think it probably causes a lot of defense and a lot of um, defensiveness. Like, wait, what are you saying? I'm a white supremacist. That means I'm a Klansman. And my question to you is, was this all known and strategized beforehand? Was this, was it, is it just a coincidence that academia chose to use the term that is our default condition as something that if you were to call it to a white person would necessarily cause them to deny it to the nines? Is it intentional? Is it totally unintentional? Is it somewhere in between where maybe the academics were saying, you know what, if it has that effect, so be it. Maybe people should feel discomfort. What do you know about this term? Um, that use of white supremacy is actually an object lesson. And you're right. At first, it was something I knew from academia. It was a kind of rhetorical usage. Where it comes from is the word used to be bigotry or prejudice. Then more popular became racism because words lose their power. Someone says, no, I'm not prejudiced in 1970. So then you say racist because that keeps attention on the subject because it's a fresher word. It has more of a sting. You're trying to make a point. You're trying to serve society. Now, by the 20 teens, racism and racist had gotten a little shop worn in that there were more and more questions as to what racism is, whether or not a person is a racist, people pushing back against being called a racist. So the word needed some kind of refreshing where you could make people stand up and take notice. I don't know if it was meant to make people jump or to hurt people, but the idea was to keep racism in the conversation. You couldn't keep using that particular word because people weren't listening as much anymore. To be honest, Mike, I don't trace it to academia, I trace it to, I think probably 75% of it is ta Coates was very fond of the word. He used it in the Atlantic. He would use it a lot in his tweets. He would say white supremacy where the word would have been racism 10 years before. One of his tweets went roughly, there's nothing wrong with black America that white that, that the eclipse of white supremacy would not cure. That would have been the eclipse of racism if he had written it in, say, 1995. And so then it caught on, not only him, but I think that was part of it. And so now we're using this term, white supremacy, when what we really mean is racism. I haven't been fond of it because, in light of what we were saying before, still it very much rings in our ears that white supremacy is you know, an overseer riding a horse across a plantation. A white supremacist is somebody who is in favor of lynching. It's some Mississippi senator in white clothes making some ugly speech after Plessy versus Ferguson. That's white supremacy. And yet we're also using it to mean somebody who you know unconsciously says something that offends someone. We're using it to mean that there is inequity in society and that some of it is differs by race, and we're calling that white supremacy, which implies a kind of agency that I think most people know, at least in their calmer moments, is not there. So yeah, it's it's problematic, but it's not it's not something that anybody's doing on purpose with devious or hurtful intent. It's because language is always refreshing itself, and racism got old, and so now we call it white supremacy. Maybe there'll be a time when we don't think of the, the Klansmen. But we're not in that time. And so I find it, it's an unfortunate usage, but I have never railed against it. 
There are people, however, who will make the distinction between, let's skip over racism, bigotry and white supremacy. There are people, white people, who will say, well, I have to acknowledge that I benefit from white supremacy, that I engage in this system of white supremacy. Many of them would not say, I benefit from bigotry. They could say, I stand to thwart bigotry, yes, but we're not talking about pure bigotry, hatred in the heart, when we speak of white supremacy. We're talking about something more passive. So I don't think it's been exactly a substitution. I think it's also been an expansion. Yeah. Also, by racism, I think I should have been more specific. Societal racism. Yeah. So not Archie Bunker and calling people names, but inequity based on race. If you say societal racism, it's a very squishy term. Because once again, people say, how can a society be racist, etc. Another way of expressing that without getting your shoes stuck in questions about the term is to call it white supremacy. And I think that's a lot of what the appeal of it has been. So I participate in white supremacy, somebody says. But once again, they don't mean that they do it actively, but they just mean that whites end up supreme. Yes. So about whiteness. Now, here is a word that can mean one thing to the listener. Uh, That is, I guess, many people say that's my default race. It's just the equivalent of Caucasian. But then, especially in academia or circles that are influenced by academia, there's this uh, discussion, this discourse about the problem of whiteness. In fact, the University of Chicago recently had a course titled The Problem of Whiteness, and there was some blowback based on even having that title. But this is uh, an avenue that many people want to pursue. Let's interrogate whiteness. Let's not allow whiteness to even capitalize the word white or whiteness so as not to allow whiteness to exist there. But my question is, it's very hard not to, if white is your race, as Caucasian is your race, it's very hard not to hear the problem of whiteness in the exact same way as the problem of being an African-American, the problem with Hispanics. And you would say there would never be a college course called the problem with Hispanics. But of course, there's a a course called the problem of whiteness. My question is similar to the first one, which is, is this done with intent? Is the tweaking? Yes, we know it's possibly going to upset you. And to some extent, we delight in that. Is that part of what's going on, do you think? (laughs) Almost, but I would say it's not about (laughs) delight. I think that there's a certain kind of person, and this increases with education, who feels that white people need to understand that this thing called whiteness is a problem in a way that no other-ness based on ethnicity is. And so the idea is that there is no problem of blackness, no problem of Latino-ness. The problems that any of those people have or problems you might have with any of those people are all, according to this ideology, a function of the oppression of whiteness. The idea is that whiteness oppresses the world. That's not a crazy notion, but the problem with it is it saps the humanity and the individuality from the white person who's listening to it. It's frankly quite against anything that, and this is almost a cliche to say, what Martin Luther King advised. And so if you're white and you hear about this business of there being a problem of whiteness, you can understand intellectually that the idea is what white people en masse have done across the globe. But on the other hand, there's also an idea in there that you are a problem, that you carry a certain guilt. There's something dirty about you. 
it is not racist to resist that. I think that the idea of calling whiteness a problem can be rather oversimplified. I almost wish that there were a squishier term for it, like societal racism, instead of just calling it whiteness. Because I can say, if I were white, I would think, okay, I participate in something you could call white supremacy. Okay, my ancestors have done certain things, and maybe even my parents, but I'm just living my life right now, and I feel accused. And there's a certain kind of person, a kind of Robin D'Angelo kind of person, who does think you should feel accused. This is where society needs to go. This is how we're going to create justice. I don't think Robin D'Angelo delights in it. I don't see her smiling about these things. But she thinks of it as, you know, if she were a religious person, it would be God's, God's words. I don't think she is. But that kind of person, and she's the quintessence of this, she thinks of it as doing social justice. Maybe she delights in the remuneration that has resulted from the accusation. Mike, you know, I don't know, no. If people are willing to pay her for that, I don't see why she should refuse it. Same thing with Ibram Kendi. I think that they both really believe what they're saying. I don't, they can't, they're not going to refuse the $20,000, right? No, no, no. I agree with that. Yeah. If that's her speaking fee, that's her speaking fee. Absolutely. I agree with that also. Uh, I'm, we're just debating if like, is she so aggrieved by the fact that this is uh, the condition that she's describing? How do the people who propose such a course or just want to engage in that kind of discussion, how do they not realize that it is going to cause this, we've said words other than defensiveness, that it is going to cause this queasiness. It is going to cause the intended listener to be backfooted by the associations with the implication of what you're saying. And so that's, I, I keep thinking of that and I keep thinking if that is um, an unfortunate byproduct of the project they're engaged in, the education and scholarship they're engaged in, the point they're making, or if that not is a part of it, an intentional part of it. You know, I was present at an earlier phase of this whiteness business. When the whole concept was first becoming popular with PhD types, I was at UC Berkeley and just for, you know, it, it's for reasons as random as that linguistics at Columbia is in Slavic. My office happened to be near the people who were in something called rhetoric. And a lot of them were talking about whiteness in, say, circa 1998. My impression with those people was that they, like all of us in a way, live in a bubble. They very rarely encountered or talked seriously to people who didn't agree that whiteness was a problem. And almost all of them were white at the time. And to them, you also get into this smaller aspect of humanity. All of us suffer from it to an extent, but I think, frankly, the hard left has a major problem with it these days. You caricature and demonize people who disagree. So as far as these people doing whiteness studies were concerned, anybody who disagreed with them would be some frat boy with his arms crossed or some bigot, somebody who in the future was going to vote for George W. Bush, etc. I don't think they were thinking about the fact that there could be people in the middle who had reasonable pushback who were not going to be convinced by listening to their teachings. You know, they might think, well, we need to educate them. But there's some people who would be educated and still say, no, I don't feel like I'm a whiteness. But all they knew, they were out there dressed in black, smoking their cigarettes. They were they were very picturesque people, I remember. I, I liked looking at them. But they only knew each other. And so you know, I exonerate them more than you do, but I take your point. I'll go, I'll go further than that. I will say that there are many aspects to this uh, form of scholarship that 
I've learned a lot from. And I don't know if it's um, it's about being lowercase e educated. It's just I, I've learned facts and they're indisputable bull facts and they're interesting ways to think about our culture, such as there was a recent book, How the Irish Became White. And mm-hmm. I remember I saw that title and I'm like, oh, first of all, I didn't really realize, I mean, to some extent, I knew that there were signs in Boston, you know, Irish need not apply and perhaps the mythological, no Irish or dogs. Mm-hmm. But then they're absorbed, the idea of whiteness as absorbed into the mainstream. And I think about that with uh, Italians and Jews, my two uh, ethnicities, and I think about that with Hispanics now. And that's all really valuable to think about which groups we deem white and which groups we don't. But one of the reasons that I was allowed into the education was that there were no fingers at me. That part of it wasn't to, you know, make me uncomfortable, was simply to educate me. I think that works better, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong or maybe I'm not just uh, down with the dressed in black smoking cigarettes (laughs) forming the very nice aesthetic line at the Berkeley Rhetoric Department. Well, I think you... (laughs) (laughs) The whole issue that's difficult is the idea that you are responsible for the sins of your ancestor or even the sins of some of the people who are living in your time now. And it's interesting. You, Mike, are supposed to be, because you know now apparently you're, you're white, you are responsible for the sins of whiteness, whereas the idea is that black people aren't responsible for the things that black people do wrong. Apparently, to be anything but white is to be an innocent. And so if a black person does something wrong, that's not all black people's fault. But if a white person has done something wrong, then it is the responsibility even of white people in the future to seek redress, to, to, to redress the harms. That's hard for a white individual, I'm sure. And this is exactly the kind of thing that gets exactly that kind of white person to say about me that I like to say things that white racists like to hear. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to imagine what it must feel like to be this kind of white person where, yes, it would be frustrating to be educated in a way that involves someone putting a finger in your face. And for that not to be, say, one class, but for that to be the grand theme of an entire aspect of inquiry and even of most of your university teachers who aren't in STEM. That, that, that's hard. That's probably too much to expect of most people to just take in the way that establishment is hoping that you will. And tomorrow we will continue our conversation with John McWhorter, some terms that we'll be speaking of, toxic masculinity, how interruptions contribute to conversations, and how the words themselves are what we are arguing about these days as opposed to the ideas that the words are supposed to explain. McWhorter's Quarters, number two, part two, tomorrow. And now the spiel. I've spent the past seven years traveling the world perfecting my craft. The Willy Wonka trailer is out. Also out of ideas, Hollywood. Oh, we have great TV shows, great movies, podcasts, more forms of narrative than we can handle. But movies, big Hollywood movies, it's all just an excavation of the imagined imaginations of the audience. Hey, familiarity with anything, absolutely anything from your youth? All right, let's poke it, twist it, mine it, explore it, desperately try to wring meaning from it to make a dollar in the moment. And in case anyone forgot, which, hey, they may have, they already did this with Willy Wonka. Johnny Depp was Wonka. Now, Timothy Chalmay is Wonka. You see, I'm something of a magician, inventor, and chocolate maker. 
So quiet up and listen down. Nope, scratch that, reverse it. That isn't even the right callback to the original line. We have to get on, we have to get on, we have so much time and so little to do. Strike that, reverse it. This way, please. That doesn't seem like a big difference, but scratch it, reverse it. It's a more familiar phrase. It's less jarring. Strike that. Well, that's blunt. That's something you'd say in a court of law. That's a bit off-putting. And that gets to a big difference, as I see it, as I discern from this trailer, comparing it to the 1971 movie. This Wonka, the 2005 Johnny Depp Wonka, they're sanded down. They're beautified. Listen to the background audio. You could change her life, Mr. Wonka. Change all their lives. Did you hear the difference? There are no weird edges to this one, no harsh colors or off-putting angles. If there was a weird angle, it would be designed and plotted and really intentional. This film has a reported budget of $125 million. The 1971 original had a budget of $3 million. Most went to snozberries and Loompa leggings. To be fair, $3 million in 1971 is like $23 million in 2023 dollars. But that's all to say that this movie costs five times as much as the original. Cheaper, weirder, and more off-putting. That would have been a better way to go. The current Wonka, Timothy Chalmay, is of course adorable. It's really an inadequate word. Adorable is able to be adored. He is universally adored. Girls love him. Boys love him. Parents love him. Kids love him. He's kind of perfectly calibrated. He's the aggressively quaffed crush for a generation. He is, in many respects, like Johnny Depp. 2005 Willy Wonka. A heartthrob for his era. Both are seen as not just handsome men, but a little bit edgy. But edgy in the Bugatti versus Bentley sort of way. Ooh, dangerous, but still very, very, very upscale. Johnny Depp's girlfriends were Sherilyn Fenn, Winona Ryder, Kate Moss, Amber Heard, weighing in at a combined 189 pounds. They were a veritable who's who of the most attractive women of their day. Timothy Chalamet's girlfriends consists of a similar grouping of beautiful women, including the offspring of the beautiful Johnny Depp, Ms. Lily Rose Depp. Chalamet and Depp are pretty, pretty men. Then you have the original Wonka, the Ur Wonka, the Gene Wilder Wonka. With his crazy hair, his loping gait, his origin as Jerome Silberman, Wilder wed Gilda Radner, and they were the first couple of quirkiness. But Gene Wilder was not a man to be swooned over. Three of the first four characters Gene Wilder ever played on film were Bonnie and Clyde's hostage, Eugene Grizzard, Leopold Bloom and the producers, and Aloysius Quaxer Fortune. His fifth ever role was Wonka. He was a seemingly off-putting, yet oddly intriguing weirdo, playing a character created by Roald Dahl, who by all accounts genuinely hated much of humanity, which was all to the good. Dahl's inventions wormed their way inside our brains in ways they weren't supposed to. Let me read to you the first few words of a BBC biography of Dahl. Roald Dahl was an unpleasant man who wrote macabre books. <laughs> Now the Dahl estate is in the business of sanding off his catalog's rougher edges. But the unpleasantness isn't an unfortunate byproduct of the genius. It was the genius. And Willy Wonka 
is meant to convey a great deal of unpleasantness. Like Dahl, he is not meant to appeal to adults, nor did he in the first movie feel the need to ingratiate himself with children. Rather, he sucked them into pipes, engorged them with malfunctioning blueberry gum, and disposed them down garbage chutes. She was a bad egg. Oh. Where'd she go? Where all the other bad eggs go? Down the garbage chute. Oh, the garbage chute. <laughs> where, where did it lead to? To the furnace. <laughs> to furnace! <laughs> She'd be sitting like a sausage. Well, not necessarily. She could be stuck just inside the tube. Inside the... <laughs> Hold on! Veruca! Sweetheart! Daddy's coming! Gene Wilder played Willy Wonka as a cross between a carnival clown and a serial killer. The only thing that made the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka the sort of indelible character, sorry, the sort of piece of intellectual property that we beloved and value now was the uncertain alchemy of the 1970s. We just didn't have the ability to sand the edges off of production. There was the impossibility of convening a focus group. The audience just couldn't tell the filmmakers what they wanted ahead of time. Now they've tried to recast or re-recast Wonka and remake history. I don't know, maybe this movie will get great reviews. The director's pretty good, apparently. Hugh Grant is an Oompa Loompa. I will have you know that I am a perfectly respectable size for an Oompa Loompa. An Oompa what now? Allow me to refresh your memory. Oh, I don't think I want to hear that. Too late. I've started dancing now. Once we've started, we can't stop. That's something, that's unexpected casting. But to quote the Loompas themselves, whose existence will surely be explained as one of empowerment, not subjugation, as clearly implied by the first film in the original text. Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Doo I've got another puzzle for you. What do you get from remaking great works? A wince on your face and not so much as two smirks. The stars will be blander and the scripts will be milder. You've got to get Gene Wilder. But he's been dead for seven years. My argument isn't some embrace of auteur theory, of letting geniuses go untrammeled, unsullied, uninterfered with by studios and suits. My argument's more like, sometimes you catch lightning, wild purple-suited lightning in a bottle, and there's no means of replicating that. They tried once. It was not even awful. It was worse than awful, at least in the world of Willy Wonka. It was bland. And that is it for today's show. Corey Wara produces and also maintains the lickable wallpaper for Peachfish Productions. Joel Patterson is the senior producer and vice president of Hair Toffee Innovation. Michelle Pesca is CLO. And make sure the everlasting gobstoppers never stop here at Peachfish. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to do it, want to change the world, there's nothing to 
Tvoje 